All right, let's, um, we're going to be looking at it again because of the topic, many subject and many pa passages of Scripture. And uh, so uh, you could take your Bibles and turn to two places, Isaiah 53, 11, and Romans 8, 4. At least we'll start off there. And while you're turning, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you have uh, brought us here today. Thank you, Lord, that again in our country we have the privilege freely to open up the Word of God and to study it and to preach it, where we know, Lord, even Christians, even this very day, are being displaced by their home in Iraq, never possibly to come back, and even some are being murdered because they are Christians. And Lord, we're far removed from that in our country. And Lord, that's a sad thing that our, even our own media does not tell us what's happening in the world. But I pray, Lord, that it would always be on our mind that the persecution of believers is on the rise. And Lord, it may come to our shores someday, sooner than we think, so I pray, Lord, don't make us too comfortable. Help us to always be on guard. Help us to put the whole armor of God on to stand up against the wiles of Satan. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would always be armed with Scripture, that our minds would be saturated with truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would desire to live holy lives, lives that honor you, especially in these days. And I pray, Lord, that the desire of our heart would be to love you and bring you glory. So, Lord, I pray that you'd open thy word to me now and to us. And I pray that you would show us the truth of the extent of the atonement, of the design of the atonement, of what you actually accomplished on the cross and who you accomplished it for. Help us to understand these truths and think about them. And, Lord, I pray these truths would bring us to a place that we would rejoice with great joy because of the great things you've done. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now I am uh, continuing to embark on preaching on the doctrines of grace. And remember, in time past, historically, this has been referred to as the five points of Calvinism. I explained all that in the first message. And I have said that these are biblical doctrines and they do matter deeply in our Christian walk. And to ask why these things should be such an interest to us, it is because they are the heart of the Christian faith. See, where each of us stands on these five doctrines really do affect our view of how we understand God, how we understand man, how we understand regeneration, salvation, assurance, and today the nature of the atoning work of Christ, how it affects our worship and our evangelism and missions throughout the world. Somewhere along the way, uh, of course, this has been categorized as uh, by the acrostic TULIP, which of course is T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, 
and P for perseverance of the saints. Of course, some have categorized it with another acrostic, and that would be RUPEP, and that would be radical corruption, unconditional election, and then particular redemption in place of limited atonement. And then, of course, effectual calling in place of irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints would stay the same. Now, from my last message on unconditional election, I must say that election itself saved no one. It only marked out particular sinners for salvation. Those chosen by the Father and given to the Son had to be redeemed if they were to be saved. The common view of limited atonement or particular redemption is that Jesus died for everyone in some way. Limited atonement does not mean that Christ's death is limited in its value, though. We should never think of it in that way. The gospel is to be offered to all, and it is often said that the atonement was sufficient for all and efficient only for those who believe or for the elect. So the extent or accomplishment of the death of Christ is what we're talking about when we're talking about the atonement, that what did Jesus actually do on the cross and to what extent he did it and to whom did he do it for? According to uh, many theologians, Reformed theologians, and one of them, uh, the most popular question is, what was the purpose or the intent of Christ's death? And there are two major uh, purposes that are given, one in the Arminian camp and one in the Reformed camp. The Arminian camp says that the atonement was, was it to make possible the salvation of all people on the condition of their believing, which really secured salvation for no one. The Arminian says the atonement was not designed by God to purchase a specific people for himself, but to make salvation possible for any person who will of his own and her own free will repent and believe. Now, it sounds like that is the case uh, today. However, the reform position is this, that the atonement was to ensure the salvation of his people. It was definite in its design an accomplishment that the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption states that the death of Christ actually put away the sins of all God's elect and ensured that they would be brought to faith through regeneration and kept in faith for glory. So from the definiteness and effectiveness of God's plan in the atonement follows the limitness, how it is limited. That Christ, in other words, did not die 
in this efficacious sense for everyone. In other words, not all are saved. So we have to consider that when we consider what the scriptures do teach on it. The issue in limited atonement is the atonement limited in its design. That, that is, the original design of the atonement was to provide a definite sacrifice, a definite shedding of blood, a definite death for the elect that their sins would be covered and washed away so that God's children could be kept right or be made right, declared right, and made right with God forever. So what we need to do now is to answer some questions concerning the definiteness of Christ's atonement. That the atonement of Christ was effective. And the first question is this, for what reasons did Christ die? Well, let's look at them. Isaiah 53:11 are the and Romans 8:34 are the first two passages of scripture. The first reason that Christ died was to to justify the sinner. In Isaiah chapter 53:11, if you're turning there, the bearing of the iniquities means all whose iniquities Christ bore must be justified. It says in Isaiah 53, 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So therefore, in this scripture, that the sinner must be justified by a sacrifice. And also the fact that Christ's death and resurrection and intercession means that no one for whom Christ died was raised to intercede may be condemned. In other words, in Romans 8.34, it says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So in other words, does, does Jesus, who died on the cross, intercede for everyone? According to John chapter 17, he intercedes for only his children. Why? Because he died for them. He died in their place. So the first reason for Christ's death, that it was effective for the elect, was to justify them. The second reason was to redeem and to cleanse them of sin. So the fact that Christ bought us and purified us means that those whom Christ died are his possession and cleansed for his presence. Again, Titus chapter 2, verse number 14, it says, and the apostle Paul is writing there, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So see, in other words, that Christ is going to die to purify a group of people for himself. So see, there is a definiteness. Uh, a, Christ died for a particular group 
of people, and that is to first to justify them, then to redeem and cleanse their sins, and then a fourth basic reason for which Christ died is to propitiate the Father. And remember, propitiation, big word, but good theological word, it means to be turning away or to appease the wrath of the Father that he had upon the sinner. And so, therefore, by definition, the Father has no more wrath against those who, whose sins have been propitiated. Of course, the passages that are used with this word in it is 1 John 2, 2, and which says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I'll look at that passage again later on, all right? And then in 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So you see those personal pronouns are there indicating that he died for us. He died for our, and then we have to ask ourselves, who is the us and who is the our? Who is the you in, in the passages that we're reading? So he died uh, to propitiate the Father, to turn away his wrath against the sinner. All right, if someone doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, then the wrath of God is still on them. Someone does believe in Christ, then of course the wrath of God is propitiated. It is sent the other way. God has a, his whole demeanor towards the sinner is changed because of the sacrifice or the atoning death of Jesus Christ. A fourth basic reason is to raise a person to new life. If Christ died for someone, then with no other conditions, that person died with him and was raised again with him. Of course, several passages of Scripture bring this to pass. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, where again it says, uh, in that passage, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, in verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So again, the scripture is bringing us to a place where it's showing us there was an effective nature to Christ's death on the cross, and it was to justify, it was to redeem and cleanse of sin, it was to propitiate the Father, and it was to raise a person to new life, not only present resurrection life in which we live in a sanctified condition and a desire to please God, but ultimately we will be raised from the dead our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will receive a resurrected body someday because Christ raised and because of his resurrection, we will be raised ultimately to live with him and for him forever for this very reason, because of the effectiveness of the death of Christ. So if the death of Christ did not, does not have an effectiveness in someone's life, of course, they cannot be a believer. So all these mean that his death had a purpose, which was intended for some and not 
for others. It was intended for some, but not for all people. His his death had an effective intent that was limited to certain persons. And that's where we get the meaning for limited atonement or particular uh, redemption that the Lord died for a particular group of people. So the second question that we should ask at this point is that the purpose, God purposed to redeem a certain people and not others. And the question is, for whom did Christ die? Whom did he die? Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6 and look with me at verse number 36 through 37 through 40. And I'm not going to read all those verses, but uh, a few of them. And I want you to look at them because on considering for whom did Christ die, that Christ, first of all, gave his life in particular for certain people. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and verse 37, it says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, look over to verse 39 of the Gospel of John. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So in that passage of Scripture, in the Gospel of John, there is a sequence found there that is really important for us to, to uh, look at. First of all, it's all that the Father gives are drawn. All who are drawn come. All who come, Jesus receives and he will turn no one away. And then all who are drawn are raised to eternal life. That is a progression that is seen not only in this scripture, but other scriptures that cannot be broken at all. Now, this is not because you and I are inherently desirable. We are not desirable. The Lord didn't elect us for any desire in us. Matter of fact, when he died, it says in Romans 5 that he died for the ungodly. Right? He died for those who were sinners, uh, for those who did not believe him, who were enemies of God. That's who he died for. So see, it was nothing that God saw in us uh, that was desirable in which he chose us. It is because you and I are a gift from the Father to the Son. We are a gift from the Father to the Son. It is the perfect gratitude and love of the Son towards the Father that opens the arms of the Son to embrace the gift. And so when someone is drawn, comes, receives, and now realizes that they are raised to eternal life, then that person, of course, comes and Jesus embraces that gift the Father has given them, and the gift is us. The gift's 
the gift to Jesus Christ is believers, those who come. Then, of course, in John 6.39, again, and that all that he has given me tells us that none of these will be lost. None of them will, he will lose nothing of which the Father is giving over to Jesus as a gift. All right, so again, there's a definite plan in God's mind when it comes to the atonement, right? And we should never think of God as someone who is crossing his fingers, hoping that someone would come. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has a definite plan for those who would believe. And that plan, of course, has a sequence to it. And, of course, anybody who comes and believes, all right, it's not because they basically believed, but it's because of God's plan that the gospel came to them, that Jesus atoned for them, and that they actually receives him uh, and then is given the gift of eternal life. And then look with me right there in the Gospel of John at John chapter 17 in verse number 9. Because Jesus gave his life in particular for certain people, but also Jesus intercedes in particular for certain people. He does not pray in this passage for everyone or the world, but only for those the Father gave the Son. Verse number 9 of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. See, again, there's something very particular there. And then look at verse number 20 of the Gospel of John 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through your word. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not only asking for those who are my disciples now, but I'm asking also for those who will hear your word and believe in your word and become one of my children. In verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So see, we're talking about these, wor these words he's using here is that Jesus Christ is praying for a particular group, and he even makes sure that he lets us know he's not praying for everyone in the world. He's praying for his children, and his children who have been elect before the foundation of the world will hear the word of God, and they will receive the word of God. And the ones that receive the word of God are the ones the Father gave to the Son as a gift. And then... Christ intercedes for the same people for whom he offers himself up as a sacrifice. Now, you don't have to turn here, but a passage in Hebrews says this, who does not need daily, Hebrews 7.27, like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did once for all when he offered himself. In other words, one for all, he offered himself up for the sins of 
his people, those who would be drawn by uh, the Father, who would come to him, who he would receive as his sheep, and who will be raised to eternal life. Now, those whom God purposed to redeem include all who believe. Now, we know that, right? You have to believe. That's part of it. And what I want you to do is I want you to turn your Bible to, uh, well, John 3.16. And I want to just park there a little bit, John 3.16, because in this passage of Scripture, which is used quite often, we may miss uh, what's actually going on here and the audience to which Jesus is, the person to which Jesus is speaking in this passage of Scripture. But in this passage of Scripture, Christ's saving work is commonly spoken of in terms of all and, of course, in terms of the world. And I'll probably not deal with all of that in this message, but in uh, the next message on this particular topic where, of course, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So when Christ-saving work is commonly spoken of in terms of all and in terms of the world, we do have to define that. We do have to have an understanding of what that means. Uh, Christ's death, was it for every person, every individual, or was it for people in certain ethnic groups, in certain nations? It was not for all individuals. Of course, that's the point. It was from all men in every class of people. That all who are going to be saved in any class of people will come. That all men is explicitly tied to all classes of men, all classes of people, not all individuals. Now, this verse, which includes the word, the the verses that includes the word all, the whole, the world, are interpreted in, of course, in certain way. Does all mean all, all the time? Well, we must not forget that while reading through Scripture, that its language is sometimes figurative and hyperbolic. Uh, Universal terms are used when we don't mean universal in fact. For example, uh, if a husband or a wife says to each other, you always leave the towel on the floor in the bathroom and never hang it up. Now, that may be true some of the time, but it is not true all of the time. So you see, we use all when we don't actually mean all, all the time. All right, but we use it that way. Now, the reason why the Word of God does use Scripture that say all and world And those are the verses that are usually used against the doctrine of limited atonement. The scriptural point is this. The reason these general terms are used in scripture was to correct the false notion that salvation was for the Jews alone. The world, all men, 
all nations, every creature are used to correct the mistaken notion that salvation was for the Jews alone. See, Christ died for the Jews and Gentiles without distinction, but they are not included to indicate that Christ died for all men without exception. In other words, he did not die for the purpose of saving each and every lost sinner. And I can go through many passages of Scripture uh, to bring that to your attention. But if you look again at John 3.16, all right, there is a context here where it says, For God so loved the world. See, Nicodemus is the one Jesus is talking to, and Nicodemus was a Jewish teacher of the law and prophets. Nicodemus was in a culture obsessed with race and ethnicity. That is, salvation belonged to the physical uh, descendants of Abraham, not all the other nations, not all the uh, other ethnic groups of the world. That was in the mind of Nicodemus. And so the Messiah, he thought, was going to come, a Messiah that was for the Jews alone. It never dawned on the Jewish mind that Messiah would pay the sins of the Romans, of the Greeks, of the Samaritans. See, these defiled people needed to be thrown out and destroyed. It was inconceivable to the Jew that a Gentile can be saved, forgiven of sins, and made right with God. So see, the reason why those terms are often used in Scripture is to correct that misconception. And Jesus had to correct it, correct it with Nicodemus before he could ever come to Christ. He had to clear up that issue in his mind. And he had to let Nicodemus know that when I use the word world, I am talking about ethnic groups of the world that you would never include in salvation, but God has in his election. And so therefore, once that was cleared up and then God brought Nicodemus to numbers and says, unless the serpent, of the, wilderness, uh, the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and those who looked at the serpent lifted up, they were uh, healed of their being bitten by snakes. Of course, they were going to die. And if they looked by faith, they would be healed. Jesus says, brought that up to Nicodemus in this conversation. Nicodemus put two and two together. Of course, he was convicted of his sin of righteousness and judgment. And he was drawn to Jesus Christ and understood if he looked, in, uh, looked by faith to Christ as the only sufficient sacrifice, not only could he be saved, but even his Gentile neighbors could be saved. Even the Samaritans can be saved. Even all the ec other ethnic groups of the world can be saved. So when the Lord is using the word world, he is not including every single individual. All right, that must be clear when we're reading scripture. It was the Puritan John Gill commenting on John 3:16, and he wrote this. He says, now in opposi opposition to such a notion, 
our Lord addresses this Jew, Nicodemus, and it is as if he said, you, Nicodemus, says that when the Messiah comes, only the Israelites, the particular favorites of God, shall share in the blessing that came by and with the Messiah, and that the Gentiles shall reap no advantage by him, being hated of God and rejected of him. But I tell you, God has so loved the Gentiles as well as the Jews. That was a shocking revelation for Nicodemus and for the Jewish mindset. They thought they were the people of God and that nobody else would be able to be saved. And so that changed, and that's the reason why Scripture is so emphatic sometimes on bringing these particular general words up. All right, so it clears that up. So then, the world does not mean every single person. Now, in saying that, are there any passages of Scripture that would seem to limit the atonement to less than every single person? Yes, well, what are some of them? Well, the passage I read in Isaiah 53.11, it says he will justify the many, all right, using that word. And then Isaiah 53, verse 12, yet he himself bore the sins of many. And then Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, it's not saying he gave his life a ransom for all. Matter of fact, when the atonement is directly connected with it, it usually says words like many. All right, and then in Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. There's the atonement, right? Men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. So God is going to save a group of people from every single ethnic group, from every single nation of the world from the beginning till now. There's going to be a great multitude of people from all walks of life. But it, not everyone is going to be saved. Now, if you're still right there in the Gospel of John, you uh, should be there unless you turned, oh, no, you were, you were actually in John 3.16. But right there in the Gospel of John, uh, look at chapter 10 again, all right, where Jesus says in verse number 11, John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for everyone, right? What does it say there? It says, so the good shepherd lays his life down for a particular group of people, and that group of people is his sheep, all right? Now, if you look down to verse number 24 of the Gospel of John chapter 10, you will see something, and it says this, the Jews then, this is verse 24, then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It says in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. Then notice verse number 26. But you do not believe 
because you are not my sheep. So the sheep here are those whom he gives eternal life. They are those for whom he lays down his life. They are not all because he tells those who are rejecting him in verse 26, in verse number 26, that they are not his sheep. So specifically in this passage of Scripture, these people are not his sheep. Saying that I didn't lay down my life for you, you're not my sheep. I lay my life down for my sheep. He's making a very clear distinction himself that there is a... Per- there is a particular redemption going on, that Christ died for his people, for his sheep. So the whole language used implies that the salvation of the sheep alone is the object for which his life is laid down. Jesus did not lay his life down for the wolves and the goats, just for the sheep. So then Jesus was dying on the cross. He was substituting himself and paying the price for their sins for a particular specific people. All those the Father had given him was on his heart when he was dying on the cross. Now, just think again of John chapter uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. Just think again of that, that familiar passage of Scripture. It may come uh, to you as a big surprise to learn that in the original language, in the original Greek, there is no word for whoever. And this is where usually the emphasis lies, whosoever will. Literally, the text reads, in order that every... In order that every the one believing in him, not to perish, but have everlasting life. It says every or all the ones believing. That's hard to express in English, but its essence is saying all the believing ones. Through our English translation, uh, though our English translations say whoever believes, the literal rendering is accurately translated as every believing one. And the emphasis is not at all or the whosoever but on the belief the one believing will not have one consequence but will have another consequence and the consequence will be they they will not perish but have eternal life now why is this because the main verb because god gave his son god gave his son for the purpose that every believing one should not perish, but every believing one should have everlasting life. So the text in John 3.16 actually speaks of a limitation of a particular rather than a universal redemption. For clearly, not everyone will be saved, but only those who believe in Christ. The Father gave his Son for the purpose of those who believe. The Son is given so the believing ones will not perish, but opposite to that, have eternal life. That is, the purpose of the giving 
of the Son is they would believe in him, they will not perish, but they will have everlasting life. Now, why does this text tell us, what does this text tell us about who will believe or who can believe? Well, it doesn't really, it says absolutely nothing about that. The text does not address the issue of who will believe or who can believe. Now, just considering that, I've been laying down some things for you that give uh, the scriptural impression that when Christ died on the cross, he died for a particular group of people, that he did not die for everyone. That's important uh, because if he died for everyone, we would have to consider a universal redemption that ultimately somehow everyone is going to get saved. Well, well, that's not the case in, in Scripture. The case in Scripture, and I often say that this is more of a family uh, secret in the sense when we start studying the Word of God and seeing the particulars of it, then we begin to say to ourselves, wow, the Lord actually planned every single detail out of salvation and include it in Christ before the foundation of the world, particular individuals who would be saved from every ethnic group and nation throughout the whole of humanity and the whole existence of the world. That, that to me is absolutely amazing. And if you have come today and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that should really humble you and bring you to the place where you say, you know what, I had nothing to offer God. There was nothing desirable in me for the Lord to save me, and yet he brought the gospel to me. He drew me to himself. He showed me that the answer to my condemnation and sin was Jesus Christ, the person Jesus Christ, that the atonement included him dying in my place. And when you begin to understand that, see, that is something that is really life transforming. It changes every single thing that God had me uh, on his mind when he was dying there. So that means my connection to the gospel is Christ's connection to me. And I walk around every day uh, wanting to thank him for his mercy that he didn't give me what I deserved, eternal condemnation and separation uh, from him forever, but by his grace, he gave me a gift, the gift of eternal life that comes through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Now, today... I want to look at just one passage of Scripture of the problem passages that I already brought up. And then next week, I want to bring up the other problem passages that people bring up against this doctrine. All right? I'm going to look at each one of them. So we have something to say if someone says, well, what about this passage? And what about this passage? And what about this? All right? Because I want you to be thinking through it. And... I want you to be thinking through this particular doctrine this week and keep it on your mind and mull over it, meditate upon it, chew on it. Let it sink in. Let it get to your heart. And then you'll begin to realize the deep love of Christ. 
that he had for his sheep. To be able to come into this world and die in our place and to justify us, to cleanse us from all our sin and condemnation, to make us right with him, to propitiate the Father, and to raise us to new life. And so the first passage I want you to look at is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. I'll just look at this one, and then I'm closing today. But 1 John chapter 4, in verse number 10, because this is one that will come up. What are you going to say about it? How are you going to communicate to someone else about what you believe when it comes to limited atonement? All right, so we want to check out the interpretation of this passage, all right? And when there's a controversy in theology, when there's a controversy in uh, the realm of a particular theological doctrine, there's usually several interpretations to a particular problem passage, right? Well, what you have to do is you have to pick out which interpretation is, lines up with the scripture with what the Bible actually says, and, uh, and then land on that, all right? That's what you have to do, all right? So in 1 John, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says this, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, all right? What did I say, first of all? Did I say 1 John? I meant 1 Timothy. I'm sorry about that. See, that's what happens when you preach and there's a lot of passages, you've got all these things flying through your head. First Timothy, excuse me, I'm going to let you have time to turn there. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men especially of believers. All right. Now, that's going to be a passage of Scripture. Say, wait a minute. If you say that God died for a particular group of people and for all people, it says right there he's the Savior of all men. Well, that's something we have to deal with. We can't just say, well, you know, and blow it off. We can't do that. We have to really deal with it. Well, like I said, there's several interpretations of this passage. I want to throw them out to you. All right, I'm going to show you because there are difficulties uh, to dealing with theological things. Here's the first interpretation of this passage. The idea, the idea that God is the Savior of all men means that all who have ever lived will be saved. This, of course, is contrary to all sound doctrine. If this is true, the rest of the verse would have no meaning when it says especially of believers. All right, so we have to cancel that one out. We say, we say okay, Christ is not the Savior of all men, not that all men are not saved, right? So we have to check that one off. All right, second interpretation is this. God wants to save everyone, but he desire, his desire is many times thwarted by the obstinate free will of man all right? And that's another interpretation. Matter of fact, that is the Arminian view. That is the common view today. All right? Now, of course, when I get to the doctrine of irresistible grace, that will explain this one a little bit more. Can God's 
grace and gospel be resisted? Yes, it can be resisted by our obstinate heart. However, if we are drawn by the Father to the Son, on that particular day, the Spirit of God is going to regenerate us and make us alive so we believe, so we no longer resist the drawing of the Father and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would say for us, that view uh, that God wants uh, to save everyone, but his desire is many times thwarted by the obstinate free will of man, which is the Arminian view I would have to reject. All right? Now, though the passage does not say he wants to save, but that he actually saves... He is actually the Savior. It does say that in some sense of all men. Also that God's will is never frustrated, and we know that from other passages of Scripture. Now, there is a third interpretation to this passage, and that is God is able to save all men, but though all, but though all can be saved, only believers are actually are. Now, that is one that is out there today, too. God's able to save all men, but though all can be saved, only believers actually are. Now, that's true. That's true to a certain extent, but it still not, doesn't deal with what it says here in this passage of Scripture. All right? So, here is the fourth interpretation, which is the interpretation that I land on, because I think it's faithful to the context and to this particular scripture, that God is the Savior of all men in one sense, and especially of those who believe in another sense. So this fourth interpretation best fits the context. The terms salvation and Savior have many nuances to them, many different ways God saves. The Bible doesn't always use God being the Savior as actually saving men from their sins all the time. In fact, in a common grace way, that God's common grace is for all men, if we go through the Scripture, we will find the idea that God rescues or saves from the enemy attack in the Old Testament. That... Uh, he preserves humanity in Matthew. He brings physical healing and he saves people from physical demise. That God saved not only Paul when he was on board the ship, but he saved the whole, uh, everyone who was on the particular ship when he was shipwrecked. Now, it doesn't mean that they were saved in a salvific way, it means they were saved from being shipwrecked and drowning in the water. So he saves in that way, in this general way. See, God saves in the sense that he provides food and sunlight and rainfall as well as life and breath of all things. Like when Paul was preaching in Acts 17, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's talking about everybody lives, moves, and has their being because God, the creator, has given them life. In other words, God preserves, he delivers, he supplies the needs of all who will live in this world, and it is in this sense that he extends grace to them. 
saving them from destruction every day of their lives. In fact, that's what he does to all people. That's why people are alive. If, if God decides not to rescue some from a demise or from an accident or from an illness, they will die. But God desires sometimes to allow even wicked people his common grace to live long lives, even seemingly good lives, and die without Christ, not knowing that after they die, they will be judged by God for all they've done. And so the only thing they had good was this life, and this life is gone. And everything good in it is gone because God will not be there in hell with his common grace. He will be there in hell with his wrath and his wrath alone. So God is also gracious, allowing many to hear the proclamation of the gospel. All these mercies refer to the common grace of God. God sustains the lives of sworn enemies and often for many decades, as I just said. So that is the common grace of God. So yes, in that way, God is the savior of all men. Every day he saves them, he sustains them, he preserves them, he delivers them because God's their creator. No matter how wicked they are, they were still created in the image of God. And so God saves every day. Now, that's the common grace that God has for all men at all times in all the world, across all ethnic groups and all nations but there's a special grace. The most important aspect of salvation is to be saved from the wrath of God. And remember, that is the extent and design of the atonement, to save someone from the very wrath of God. So the bottom line interpretation for first Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10, teaches that we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior, the preserver, the sustainer, the deliverer of all people, showing mercy to all each and every day of their lives, and especially to those who believe who receive full salvation from his wrath and eternal life. See, there's especially that God is a savior generally as a creator for all men in preserving them and sustaining them and delivering them, but especially salvifically, he is a savior for believers. See, that does justice to the passage of scripture and it sustains our belief in the limited atonement, in particular redemption, indefinite uh, atonement for our sin, that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he died for a particular group of people called his sheep. Those particular sheep will be our gift given to Christ by the Father, and because they are his sheep, because they were elected before the foundation of the world, there are certain things that are going to take place. The sheep are going to hear the gospel. The sheep are going to be drawn by the Father. The sheep are going to believe in Jesus Christ. And the sheep are going to uh, give, have the offer of eternal life given to them, guaranteeing them that they will never perish. 
but they will have eternal life. So that's one of the problem passages. There's three other ones. I'm going to look at that next week. Let's pray. Lord, today I do thank you for the word of God. I thank you for your people. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to help us to understand the scripture, to believe it even when it goes against possibly what we were taught in the past, even when it goes against our own nature, that where we begin to think, how can God do that? I pray, Lord, that we would learn to submit to the truth of Scripture, that we would learn to come before the foot of the cross and humble ourselves under your mighty hand and conclude, Lord, that if this is the way you've done it, and if you've done it this way, then for me, Lord, my salvation is secure because it's not whether I obtained it on my own or whether I can keep it. It's because you obtained it and you keep us. So thank you, Lord, that you are a good God who is the Savior of all men generally in preserving their life, but especially because you died in our place, because you atoned for our sin and you covered it and washed it away. We have a special connection to you. We are in your family. We are your children. And I pray, Lord, that as we think about that truth, it, was, it would truly humble us. It would truly make us people who want to serve you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.